Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Roxanne Lee Woods was born in 1956 to parents Dale and Patricia. She grew up in a large and blended family. Not much is known about her early life. Roxanne had one sister and several brothers and half-brothers. She would go on to meet and marry her husband, Terry Wood. It's interesting to note that her last name changed by only one letter after they tied the knot. As an adult, she was employed by Automatic Plastics Company in South Bend, Indiana. Now, if you aren't familiar with Southwest Michigan, it borders Indiana, and many in the Niles area consider themselves part of the South Bend, Indiana metro area. It's not uncommon for people to live and work in different states, as was the case with Roxanne. Terry and Roxanne settled into a home on Tam O'Shanter Drive in Niles Township. The couple was happy in their home, and in December of 1986, the community had quite a scare. On December 23rd, according to the Herald Palladium newspaper, Emma Lou Wood McNulty, no relation to Terry or Roxanne, was found murdered in the yard of her house on Country Club Drive. The house on Country Club Drive was just a few hundred feet from their own home as the crow flies. Niles is not a high-crime area, and the murder, especially so close to the holidays, was distressing. Fortunately, police acted quickly and made an arrest in the case three arrests, in fact, charging the men with murder and armed robbery. In the new year, with the perpetrators behind bars, the community could breathe a little easier. That peace would not last. On February 19, 1987, Terry and Roxanne went bowling with friends. The pair drove separately to the bowling alley, and when it was time for Roxanne to leave, Terry decided to stay at the bowling alley and hang out a little longer. Roxanne left for home by herself in her own vehicle. Terry would not return home until about one in the morning, and when he entered their modest home, he found his wife dead from a vicious attack. He placed a panicked call for help. Troopers from the Michigan State Police Post in Niles responded to the scene and immediately began investigating her death as suspicious. In Roxanne's obituary, which was published in the paper on February 23rd, it says that Roxanne was stabbed. The obituary didn't go into details, such as that she was the victim of a sexual assault and her throat was slashed. 30-year-old Roxanne would be buried at the Silverbrook Cemetery in Niles. In April of 1987, Terry Wood put up a $15,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in her case. There was already an existing reward from Crime Stoppers, but the amount was modest, and Terry hoped that someone would come forward with information on his wife's death to collect the larger reward. What Terry may not have known was that investigators liked him as a suspect in the case. They didn't believe his story, that he came home and found her dead. Police would continue to look closely at Terry Wood for the next 35 years. This includes in 2001, when a cold case unit took another look at the case, hoping to find a new lead or tip that would bring them to an arrest. Sadly, they were unable to move the case forward at that time. 
These investigators didn't know that it would take 20 years to bring her case to close. In 2022, an Indiana man was arrested and charged with Roxanne's murder. Patrick Wayne Gillum of South Bend was extradited to Michigan to face charges for Roxanne's death. How was Patrick Wayne Gillum found? Using genetic genealogy. Today, we're speaking with Linda Doyle, Senior Forensic Genealogist with Identifinders. We're going to talk about Roxanne's case, genetic genealogy, and Michigan cases Identifinders are looking at and how you, the listener, can get involved. I am a forensic genetic genealogist at Identifinders International, and at Identifinders, we are law enforcement adjacent. As I say, we provide cold case leads for law enforcement, um, which basically is working with their uh, DNA uh, that they have on their cold cases and doing uh, performing genetic genealogy to submit those leads. When police have a cold case, they may ask you to analyze the DNA to see if you can generate additional leads or information about the case. That is correct. And that is actually a really crucial part of the process is, which, you know, I think it's kind of skipped over a lot of the time is the, you know, the state labs and especially, you know, the Michigan State Lab, they have to do so much heavy lifting before it gets to us. And Joel Schulte, he is the CODIS administrator in, uh, in Michigan and uh, the lab manager out of Grand Rapids. And he has been um, the individual to bring most of the cases to us for the forensic genetic genealogy, uh, the Roxanne Wood case, and also the uh, Sharon Hammett case that I just most recently worked on. And they just have a tremendous amount of work actually evaluating the evidence, you know, and, and ensuring that this is, in fact, you know, a case that has evidence that would be a, a, an acceptable candidate for forensic genetic genealogy. The state of Michigan, they'll, they'll have their lab look at it, and if they have good enough evidence, they know that they can forward it to an agency like yours and, and get some support and get some analyzation done. And then do, do you also do like the family tree building to find out who the person is? That's exactly right. So, you know, once it goes through, um, so I guess, you know, the detectives, I guess backing up that the detectives can earmark They've got a cold case from, you know, say, you know, in, I guess in the case of Roxanne Wood, that that was a cold case from, what was that, 82? And, um, and that, you know, that they had adequate DNA that was, um, you know, had a unknown male profile that had been uploaded to CODIS that was not a hit and um, in CODIS, meaning that there was no um, candidate in CODIS. And also not a hit with, you know, Roxanne's uh, husband, Terry Wood. So they needed to then find out who is this unknown individual and which would make it a very good candidate for genetic genealogy. From there, um, they have to then take a look at this evidence and, you know, whether it's seminal fluid that are on a pair of underwear or if it's on a blanket or, you know, something along those lines, then that needs to be extracted and then quanted and then sent to a third-party lab that we would use that then would sequence it. And, um, and there are not a bunch of labs, but a, you know, a handful, Hudson Alpha, um, Gene by Gene, um, and so forth that do that sequencing. And then it goes into another process called bioinformatics. And then it comes to us, which it would be in uh, a kit form, which we are then able to upload into GEDmatch and family tree DNA 
that then would allow us to start analyzing the DNA and building those family trees. So that that's kind of the um, the pre-process to getting it to the time where you can actually start identifying who this unknown um, subject is. So I, I was going to ask how long it takes to build someone's family tree, but I, I'm guessing that has a lot to do with how many people in their family, be it cousins, grandparents, aunts, uncles, have also uploaded to GEDmatch. So it really would depend, I'm guessing, on what you find when you look at their DNA in the larger system. You are absolutely right, Nina. That is exactly right. And um, and it, it depends. Um, you know, there are some families. It, it, you know, it comes down to, too, that, you know, if you are a, a Western Europe ethnicity composition, that is a very, very saturated population for DNA testing, which is essentially colonial American. And so the chances of having good DNA matches for that ethnicity composition are very good. If you are, say, a recent immigrant from the Baltic area, not so, not so good. Or, say, a recent immigrant from Cape Verde, chances are, are going to be very poor. So the DNA really largely depends on, just like you said, how, my, how many of your family members have actually tested their DNA, then chose to upload to these platforms and checked yes for law enforcement matching. So that's, you know, the next step that they have to take, not just uploading, you know, for the family comparisons, but also, yes, I want you, you to. You need to opt in. You have to opt in. Yes, you have to opt in for law enforcement matching. And not everyone, you know, does that. And I would say right now on GEDmatch, probably, I, I, you know, I don't have the exact numbers, but it might be less than half. It's everybody's personal choice, but I always try to make a push that this is certainly in uh, violent offender cases that, you know, this is groundbreaking, being able to use, you know, this technology and having people opt in. Is, is crucial. But again, it's, it's a personal choice and, and some people do not want to. So, right. and, I, and I can understand that. But yes, it largely depends on how many of your family have tested and also the ability of the genealogist. It's a small group of us, you know, that are, you know, working these cases and the skill level, you know, kind of varies. I mean, most of us are pretty senior, but, you know, there are some that, you know, are just getting started. So it kind of depends on the skill level too. I did the genealogical testing oh, probably 10 years ago now and opted in, and I, I didn't, dis no, didn't discover any big surprises, but more recently, I was at the Raymond Green International Outreach Gala Dinner in Atlanta, mm -hmm. and it was a predominantly African-American or black event, and mm -hmm. they were distributing the DNA, the the DNA test so that if people wanted to, they were, they had like them as door prizes. Okay. And I think she gave away like a dozen and I won one as a door prize. And I'm like, look, I've already done this. Let's, let's give this to someone else who's interested in following up on this and, and putting their DNA in the system. So it's interesting. Yeah. I thought that was a really nice. And, and Raymond Green is a, a little boy who was kidnapped at five days old from yeah. the Atlanta area back in the 70s. So his mother is still looking for him. So it absolutely makes sense wow. that she's encouraging her community to do the DNA, opt in, learn about the family history, and support law enforcement and their mission to, to get some of these cases identified. 
Yeah. And, I, you know, I have seen certainly an uptick in um, that, you know, the ethnicity composition of um, black and African-American um, sub-Saharan um, ethnicity composition for, you know, opting in. So, which is which has been terrific. Um, so, I did uh, recently identify a um, a Jane Doe, um, who Great. is uh, and it hasn't been announced yet, but that was uh, a a real gift, you know, um, to be able to uh, make that identification. Yes, and now I, I don't know if listeners realize that today, as opposed to five, ten, fifteen years ago, when a doe is found, they're automatically collecting the DNA and trying to get it into the system, whereas years ago, they just sort of took pictures and identifying marks or, you know, documented it the best they could and then buried them. So we have literally been exhuming remains and, and the remains may not be in a condition where we can get DNA, which is unfortunate because they're never going to be identified. We're sort of coming into, I think, a golden age of DNA identification. Oh, there's no question. And we right now have three um, unidentified human remain cases coming in from Michigan State Police that, you know, are very similar. I mean, they are in Mamis, um, but, um, you know, they have gone through a very similar process. But I'll tell you personally, I mean, I have a friend uh, whose brother has been missing from 19, since 1979. Oh. Uh, and it is very likely that, you know, he is interred in a pauper's grave. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's got to be the most obvious. You know, he was hitchhiking. Kind of makes me crazy that I'm like, why is there no news story about, like, you know, a young white male that was hitchhiking, you know, that they couldn't identify, that I can't find, you know, I can't find him, you know, and uh, but he's not in NamUs. Someday I'm going to find him, but so far I have not found him yet, so... Yeah, yeah my, uh, I hate to use the term pet case, but my pet case is Kim King, and she was a 12-year-old girl who disappeared in 79. So I'm still oh, helping her sisters wow. look for her. Yeah, that, I know about that case, right? So if someone wanted to, I know there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I'd love to do genetic genealogy. I would love to work on these family trees and help out. Is there a pathway for people to do that? Like, how does one become a genetic genealogist? Well, what I always recommend is that um, how I got started was, um, you know, working with adoptees. And, you know, there, you know, I feel like, oh, there has to be all the adoptees must already know who their parents are at this point, just with the, you know, with the onslaught of everybody taking a direct-to-consumer DNA test and all of the interest in that, that everybody must know. Or, you know, if you're not parent-expected, meaning you, you know, find out one day, oh, my dad isn't my dad. Um, but uh, you know, my goodness, it, it is people are still find, having surprises as, as time goes on. So there is a um, a website uh, called DNA Detectives that's run by C.C. Moore from Parabon. You can join that group and then, you know, volunteer your services because it's, uh, I guess you could say a group of search angels so that you can kind of cut your teeth, you know, working so, yes, if uh, somebody wants to learn, um, there are a lot of good resources out there. Blaine Bettinger has written a fantastic book. It's called Guide to DNA Testing and Genetic Genealogy. I highly recommend that. Family Tree Webinar uh, has tons and tons of fantastic webinars that are just step-by-step on how to do the process. And basically, that is going to show you how to identify an unknown subject, which how to get the start is to identify an unknown subject, uh, an adoptee or somebody who, you know, doesn't know who their father is. 
And you can find those individuals on the uh, this great website that CC Moore from Parabon runs, which is called DNA Detectives. And you can join there on Facebook, and there are a bunch of people on there looking to find out, you know, who their biological family are. And you can volunteer your services once you feel that you're, you know, have enough, you, you feel you got enough research skills. But honestly, I always recommend to just take your own, take a DNA test on your own because you might find some interesting DNA, you know, uh, mysteries in your own family that you could solve first. And that that's actually how I learned was my own DNA mysteries in my family. So um, that is, uh, that's always a good way to start with your own family. Yes, and that, that's an interesting point to bring up because I didn't know there were DNA mysteries in my family. And then when I submitted my DNA to the group, I had this cousin who showed up ranked just like my mother's first cousin say, who, who are you and how are we related? And it turned out he was my grandmother's younger brother's illegitimate son. Oh, wow. And he knew who his, he knew who his dad was, but he didn't know how, because I have the same name as my grandmother. He couldn't figure out where I fit in, in, you know, in the family. And I didn't know he existed. And it was like, Oh yeah, it was a, it was an open secret in the family. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And every single family, I mean, they estimate, I guess, through every generation, that 1% to 2% is there, there will be a not parent expected. So basically, you know, typically it's going to be a father, but sometimes it's a mother. So, yeah. um, you know, you can be raised by, you know, someone that you think is your mom and, you know, find out that, in fact, that individual is your aunt. So, um, yeah, it, it definitely does happen a lot. And that's something to be aware of if you're if you're doing you know the DNA testing, is you yeah. you could get a surprise and it could be benign like my surprise was or it could be something, yeah. um, a little more meaningful, and and that's yeah. something to, I, something to consider. Yes, and I always advise people, especially um, well, obviously a lot of you know I don't do adoptions uh, really very much anymore. Have a lot of friends that come to me will say, "Hey, I want to take a DNA test," and I always say, "Are, are, you, are you sure?" And tell me, let me know why it is that you want to, and then I explain what the risks are because I pretty much everyone that I know that has taken it that there's been something that's happened where they've been you know a really really big surprise and then some you know that was unsettling and then some other surprises that you know maybe they wish they hadn't known. So it's uh, you never know. There can be uh, some things. So, yeah, uh, Pandora's box. So can we change gears just for a minute? Where I talked about Roxanne Wood at the top of the episode, and one of the things mm -hmm. I want to share with listeners is I reached out to a member of law enforcement about her case probably three or four years ago now and said, hey, can I talk to you about this? I really want to do an episode about it. And they're like, why? It was her husband. And I was like, oh, Okay, and and sort of set her case to the side, but as we've learned, due to the work by Identifinders, it was not her husband. Her murder no. was the work of a random individual, and and uh, you've done some other cases from Michigan. Could you talk about those? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've had I guess three very, um, you know, very recent. So yeah, Patrick um, in Roxanne Lee Woods homicide, which was February twentieth, nineteen eighty seven that uh, we were able to identify uh, Patrick Gilliam, and he was arrested. I believe, um, I can't remember that, yes, he t did he take a plea deal? I believe that he did. I think he did. Um, and then 
two we have in court right now. Um, one, that, uh, well, I, and I also should say that, you know, Roxanne Wood, um, I did not personally work on that. That was another genealogist, um, Gabriella Vargas. She doesn't uh, work for Identifinders any longer, but um, she, she did. And then um, the other case uh, was Baby Garnet, which was a unidentified infant that was found up in um, northern Michigan, I guess, in Mackinac area. And that is, uh, I guess that was in, when was that? That was that fairly, was, uh, oh, she was discovered, or the, the identity was, of her mother was made fairly recently, but she was found late 90s, I think? Yes, it was in 97, June of 97, in Garnet Lake State Forest Campground. And then Misty Gillis, who is one of my colleagues, and she's honestly the best genealogist I've ever worked with, ever. And um, she, and that was an incredibly complicated case, too. Um, really, um, you know, we talked about, you know, uh, matches, it, really poor matches. So not a lot of family had tested. And, um, and baby cases are complicated because, uh, well, for a lot of reasons. With an unknown baby case, oftentimes the biological mother and father, you know, do not have a relationship that's recorded on paper. So that makes it very difficult. I mean, so there isn't an intersection in which to come together. Right. So you're really just identifying the mother and perhaps identifying the father then, which would then come to, of course, okay. Right. The, the, the paternal line is not necessarily useful in these cases. It's the maternal line that you need to focus on because it's it's easier right. to, to track. You know, you know it, well, it, it, what's interesting is that's what complicates these cases is that the biological father of these baby cases could very well have something to do with what happened to this child. Yes. And you don't want to get into all of the... That's a whole nother discussion for a whole nother day, the father's responsibility and accountability in these. Yeah. And I, I totally understand what you're saying, and, and I get why you don't want to open that particular can of worms yeah. today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, I mean, it, it, it's com it is very complex, but at the same time, you know, um, and a child was abandoned in a men's porta potty, this campground, and a crime was committed. And, um, you know, uh, and, and I should just say, too, we submitted a, I should say, Missy submitted a lead, um, and Nancy um, Niscala, that, that's actually her maiden name. I can't recall her, uh, I think it's uh, Gerotowski, her, um, uh, her married name, that, you know, she was arrested. She's, you know, it's on trial right now, so I can't, you know, talk much about that. But, Submitting a lead and then the work that the detectives have to do from there, law enforcement would never go out and make a, an arrest on just a lead that was submitted. You know, there is a, a tremendous amount of work that has to go into corroborating everything on that lead. You know, you have to get collect surreptitious sample to make sure that, of course, that that individual that you've identified is, in fact, a match. And then on top of that, that's not enough. There has to be other evidence that corroborates that this individual, you know, um, committed this crime. So um, there, there's a lot that needs to go into it. Well, and I'm, I'm reminded of, I, in a previous life, I was a teacher, and I'm reminded of, like, the three-legged stool, where you can't just have one thing holding up your whole case. It has to be bolstered yeah. on several sides to build the entire case and make sure that it's stable. That's right. That is absolutely right. And that's why I'm like, we submit leads and, you know, the other case that I was just mentioning about um, the Sharon K. Hammock um, in October 96 that she was found yeah. in Caledonia Township. I did work on that case. She was a victim of homicide and sexual assault. 
and uh, I delivered the lead for Gary Dean Artman. Mr. Artman, you know, I delivered that lead. Um, it could have been any of the biological brothers of his parents. Um, however, you know, he was prioritized. I felt that he should be based on his background. But again, that was law enforcement needed to go up and work that. And there was right. a tremendous amount of work that they had to do. You give you know, them the information and then they make the final decision. They build the case. Like you're just a, you're oh, just a, a part of the case file. Um, oh, yeah. It's not like on TV exactly. where you come in waving the DNA and they run off with handcuffs. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, and there's so much more that they have to do. I mean, because obviously they have access to way more than what I would. I mean, because, again, I'm working with public databases, right? You know, right. so they, you know, there's a lot, a lot that needs to be, that needs to be done on their end. So we're we're not the you know you're right we don't come in waving you know this it's him you know we just submit a lead and then they go out and do the work from there. So I want to touch a little bit on Sharon's case because in the mid to late 1990s in the Grand Rapids area there were a series of women that were murdered um, in a sexual assault murder. There were I want to say probably half a dozen women over like a four or five year period. And, and Sharon was one of those women. So I'm curious, and, and I don't know that you'll have information on this, but I'm curious if Artman will be looked at, and I'm assuming he would, in those other cases, because there was talk for a long time that there was a serial killer preying on vulnerable women in the Grand Rapids area. Yeah, I wish I had uh, information. I don't, but I mean, I'm sure he's being looked at, I would imagine, right? I um you know, because he was tied, of course, to another case. Uh, you know, there was a CODIS hit in 2007 for a similar crime. So his DNA matched to a Dusty Shuck in Maryland. Um, okay. So that, you know, there were two two in, in CODIS uh, that were a match to him. That uh, two women, you know, uh, Sharon Hammock and then, you know, and Dusty. And that she was... Uh, Dusty was very similar in uh, manner, homicide, sexual assault, found very near a, um, a truck stop. So, yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it's very possible. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting. And then um, you have a, uh, what I found an interesting case out of West Michigan, the young male doe case that, where they just found the skull and they're literally working off a skull. So can can you talk about that case a little bit? And also, and I don't, again, I don't know if you'll be able to address this, but when they get remains, they can tell by looking at them if they're historic remains or if they're newer remains. If you could talk a little bit about that too. Yeah. Um, the anthropologist, you know, I guess initially had thought that the boy, um, is, is, this is in St. Joe's, uh, St. Joe's County, right? Yes. And we're talking about that. Is this one and the same, correct? Yes. Yes. Oh. Where they just found, yeah. according to NamUs, they only have a skull. There is nothing else and they know that it's male. That That is correct. And um, I believe that there may be some other, uh, there may have been a femur bone as well, but it was at a construction site that they found in 95. But, so they had initially thought that it was, um, that the uh, the boy was much younger. So it was, uh, I think in NamUs it might say from age 7 to uh, 13, I believe. Yeah, I think but it was now, listed as 7 to 12 in NamUs. I, I looked so at now, it this morning. 
Oh, did you? Okay, because now I guess we're – it's being estimated around, um, even though it's not updated in NamUs, but uh, we're 12 to 18. Okay. This is a very interesting case because the matches actually – because I, I should also say with those cases, they have access to the entire – so we're thinking maybe 12 to 18. Now, from what I understood, uh, this is also being worked by Misty. And although I might take a pass at it, especially I was just looking at it today, the matches are really good, but it is definitely a lot of not parent expected, which then, you know, you've got no, you need that paper trail to corroborate how those family relationships come together. And if you don't have that, then you've got to dig a little deeper and kind of, you know, go with location. And it just it gets way more complex. But it can be done. But it's, it's interesting because it's definitely – so, yes, sorry, to answer your question about, you know, when they're looking at the bones, um, you know, that they had thought maybe the anthropologist had thought that it was more of a recent case. But now it's looking a little bit more historical because apparently, you know, the ground had not been touched pre the 80s. Wow. So, yeah, they didn't believe so. You know, and, and I guess there was some talk that, you know, it, well, it's not matching. I guess, that, you know, it, it, that this would be interesting because I, you know, again, I haven't looked at, you know, any of the other, you know, um, sites where people have, like, weighed in on this. But, you know, has this been looked at against other, well, it, I should say rather, the detectives could not find any missing people cases that match this young man at all. They're thinking it could possibly be from out of state. So, you know, they were hypothesizing maybe a kidnapping from out of state, from, you know, historical. I'm thinking it's maybe possibly, you know, not reported. Yeah. Which is so unusual. But it this could be a very old case. But now I'm, I, when I look at it um, recently, I just was like, this is so interesting. This has got to be, this, this poor kid's got to be identified. Yeah. Yeah, especially because yeah. it's a child um, and to be found, you know, they found partial remains. And mm-hmm. when they find partial remains, and this is more for the listeners than for you, yeah. they, they search the entire area. It's not like, oh, we found this and now we're done. It's they then start looking all around the area. They bring in a team. It's really combed over. So to only find the two pieces, you know, is interesting. Um, But they also, when they find a skull, that's good because the teeth, I think, aren't the teeth particularly good for getting DNA out of? Oh, yeah, definitely. Teeth would be the most preferred. And then from there, um, a crossbone, um, femur, and um, what's the... Third, but yeah, those two, um, and I believe we had both. Oh, good. In that case, but yeah, teeth are um, definitely the preferred. That would be number one. So yeah, which is um, which we definitely had. So yeah, definitely have a good profile in that. And like I said, the matches are good. And um, I guess also closing that loop on what I was saying before I um, hung up on myself that um, the. Um, you know, for unidentified remains, um, we have access to the entire DNA database at GEDmatch. So GEDmatch does allow um, DOE cases to have access to the entire database, which is um, which is great. Yeah, that's so super that helpful. It is. Um, FTDNA does not allow that, or at least that's not in place yet. That could be coming, but for um, GEDmatch, they do. And then you have two unidentified human remains coming up that you'll be working on out of Michigan or that your team will be working on out of Michigan? 
Yeah, there is two that are kind of recent. There are a really interesting that in um, a, a male found in Dearborn in 2019, and I believe that they I'm trying to I'm trying to remember what they were estimating how long you know I don't know that they had the estimated year of death but you know he was recovered in 2019 and he had longish gray wavy hair and this was in Dearmore in Michigan so he was wearing a t-shirt that had a very distinct image which this is on Amos Namus that um it looked like a homemade T-shirt. Um, now, again, this could be a T-shirt that was picked up at, you know, at a resale, sh- you know, store right. of will, but it was, you know, of a, a homemade T-shirt, like a picture of a child in front of a bicycle. And, you know, this gentleman was also wearing, you know, an orange winter cap, pan pants, and a Carhartt-styled uh, type of jacket. So they were thinking that he, you know, was probably homeless um, in two different type of boots, so like a rain boot and then like a hiking type of boot. Oh, so his footwear was mismatched. Exactly, exactly. So they were, you know, um, hypothesizing that he was probably um, homeless and he was found um, by workers. But really, it's so sad. And I think, yeah, yeah, they had found him in April, you know, um, in 2019. And then another uh, just uh, really, really quite, um, they're all so sad. It's just heartbreaking. A black male was found. He's a victim of homicide. He was in a burned and abandoned home. I guess this was in um, 2000, and he they estimated at the time of death only about eight hours that nobody came forward, and this was in Highland Park. So that's um, that is sad, very sad. Yeah. And he um, large, you know, he's quite large, six four, you know, on um, uh, so distinctive. Yeah, distinctive. That's what I'm thinking, and and nobody had come forward. That must have, I, I'm assuming, had been in the news. And it, I guess they're estimating he's about 20 to 40 years old. And then another uh, body of a woman. She's found. Um, you know, she was uh, a victim of homicide and uh, I think also uh, sexual assault. And she was found in the Monterey Hotel um, or motel that was in Highland Park. And this was in 2013. So she is, uh, you know, unidentified African-American body found in 1992. Her case is in the lab right now, and the other two are about to go to the lab. So I'm really looking forward to working on these. Our team is for sure. So that's, um, that's what we have going on. Yeah, and I'll post the NamUs links for those three cases okay. in the show notes so that people can take a look if they're interested. Oh, great. That's is there perfect. anything else that you'd like to touch on or tell listeners about the work that you do or about the cases that you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I just, um, you know, I would think kind of specific to the Roxanne Wood case that that's going to be on 48 Hours coming up. And, you know, there's a lot that's been said, you know, about the case. You know, our role in this was, you know, submitting a lead and law enforcement had done so much work on this in order to, you know, to arrest Mr. Gilliam our role in this was returning a lead. And thankfully, I, you know, I, I don't think I touched on this, but the genealogy in this was uh, the matches were really, really good. It went very, very quickly. So that was one of those times where it wasn't very complex, so it was a much straighter path forward. And we turned over that lead, and, you know, then 
law enforcement had, you know, a lot of work for a lot of work on the front end and a lot of work on the back end for for them to do in in getting uh, Mr. Gillen prosecuted. And we're just super happy that we get to work with, you know, Michigan State Police and everything. So, I just wanted to, uh, you know, just remind everybody that we are, you know, we're just submitting leads, you know, and um, that uh, we're we're grateful for our partnerships with law enforcement. I was going to say, don't don't minimize the just submitting leads. You guys do a lot of really hard work, and I think it's important to remember that you're part of the team that puts the case together. Um, You know, you guys can't do what law enforcement does, and law enforcement can't do what you're doing. So it's really important. Well, we are trained. I, I should say I am part of the training team that's getting law enforcement, um, you know, on board with, you know, doing this type of work because it's in their, it's, you know, I, it, I was going to say it's in their DNA and that sounds so hokey. But, I mean, that's, you know, it's, you know, analyzing and correlating. I mean, that's what they do every day, the detectives do. That is part of their, you know, their toolkit. So we are definitely out there training. I mean, a lot of agencies are considering getting a, you know, forensic genealogy you know, department having analysts that can do this kind of work because, um, I mean, this is where the direction's headed. Just like with familial searching, right? Like, it's all of the investigative leads have been exhausted for a, you know, for working a violent offender case. Then it should, it should not sit cold very long. It should go right into either familial searching if that the state allows it, which Michigan State does, or it should go to investigative genetic genealogy or forensic genetic genealogy. We've got to land on a name. That has not happened. Yes. They're working They're on that, too. Yes. Exactly. They're one and the same. And it should just go directly to that because these people, especially with, you know, sexual assault cases, I mean, these offenders don't often stop. They keep going until they get caught or they die or move somewhere else. Yes, they relocate. Like with the case um, out of Grand Rapids, he was he did this in Maryland. He did this in Michigan. Yeah, he was a long haul truck driver. But yes, and I mean there are lots of you know different. I mean, I guess Ted Bundy was um, you know <laughs> he uh, was all over, right? All over. But um, I love this work, and I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing it. And um, I uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been good so far. Well, and we're grateful that you're doing it. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and dealing with all of our technical issues today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for bearing with me so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. If you would like to read up on the dose discussed with Linda Doyle, please check the show notes for links and information. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Be safe.